Welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. You know, just last week we had a great episode with uh, Jeff Bennett, my good friend and Morehouse brother. And I have somebody else who we spent many a many a days playing Tiger Woods golf uh, during the summer at, at Morehouse College. Somebody I looked up to. Somebody I actually wrote about in My Vanishing Country. None other than my good friend, Rodriguez Murray. Lo, what's going on, man? How are you? Man, I'm great. Um, it's another beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. Um, colder than it would be in Augusta or any part of South Carolina. <laughs> that is true. You know, most times, you know, the role you have now is so important. Um, and we'll get to that. But, you know, we like to start by having people walk us through the arc of your career. And you've had a career that has been based in Washington in large part from working on Capitol Hill to being a, at a lobbying shop to now running federal affairs for the UNCF. Walk us through each step of your career uh, since you finished Morehouse. And why have you chosen to do so much work for HBCUs as a part of your professional journey? That's that's really a great question. Um, I've had this unmillennial like career that I've only been employed by three different places and I've had to work <laughs> my way up at those three different places. So when I was a, a senior at Morehouse, I just noticed that I had no Capitol Hill experience. I'd worked um, at the state legislature for the governor, but I had not um, had any Washington experience. And so I wrote letters and emails to um, all the representatives in the Atlanta area to both U.S. senators and, and to my two hometown congressmen because Augusta's divided, northern and southern. And the only one out of that half a dozen uh, members of Congress offices to respond was the white Republican dentist that represented the northern part of Augusta. And I said, well, there we go. Um, and so I went to go intern for Congressman Charlie Norwood. Uh, didn't seem like we had a whole lot in common, but I guess they were inspired by my hard work. The, the one thing <laughs> I didn't, the one thing I didn't do was go like door to door and pass my resume around, which I figured out other Hill interns were doing yeah. the entire summer of '04. I was ill prepared for that. I didn't even know what was happening. But what I did do was volunteer to write letters, and so these constituent service letters, um, interns weren't really writing those. And, and he had a policy that every person who wrote his office, that emailed his office, that uh, faxed his office, called in, they all got a letter and the letters were unique. And so they had to be written. And uh, I volunteered. I started writing them. I would come in early. I'd stay late. And he and his wife saw me when they would come in for 630 votes at the beginning of the week. And he also was ill, which no one knew at the time. And they needed an all the time aid for him. Um, I got the title special assistant, so I, I got to do what a lot of people who have 20 and more years on the Hill got didn't never get to do, which is go to the floor all the time. I had floor privileges. I went everywhere he went. So I'm 22 years old. Um, I'm, I'm flying on private jets, going back and forth. Um, the PJs is there now affectionately referred to, <laughs> but no one knew about it then. There was no Instagram or anything like that. Um, I'm going so to it, every it didn't exist. It didn't exist. If you didn't post it on Instagram, it didn't exist. Pretty much. I've got I still have a few pictures like hard <laughs> pictures. Um, but, you know, I'm doing all of that. So I'm, I'm watching how a member of Congress makes his decisions. I see how lobbyists interact with him. I see how he interacts with other members. I see how committee staff interacts with him. So I have this master class that no one else is experiencing. 
Um, you take that, he knew he was going to die. He was an ill man. But I was the only one on his staff in D.C., Augusta, or Toccoa, Georgia, that he actually worked to get a job for. And so he would set me up with these other lobbyists. Like, he tell the lobbyist from Coca-Cola, you need to talk to Ladrigas. Or he tell the lobbyist from Georgia Power, part of the Southern Company, you need to talk to Ladrigas. So these people are setting up lunches with me. I'm filling them out. Um, they're filling me out. And it ends up that the guy who represented Morehouse School of Medicine was the one that really bit. And so I started working for him and kind of worked my way up from the very bottom all the way to being the top person that did not own the firm. Senior vice president had a, a book of business in the company um, that was pretty strong, about one third of all the clients um, worked with me, all the black clients. So that's all your medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, veterinary medicine schools, graduate schools in the country. Um, very strong work. And then UNCF opened up. And so now I'm coming to UNCF with this unique knowledge base of how members work with each other to get things done on the inside, plus how you affect legislation from the outside, including a lot of experience representing historically Black colleges and universities, amongst others. I bring that to UNCF, and we've kind of retooled our entire way of how we do our federal affairs with some pretty strong success. And I've been here for four years, year over year spending for HBCUs through regular appropriations is up by over 300 million. Um, you've got now the acronym HBCUs and federal legislation um, being synonymous with the word billions, which was not there before. Um, with the pandemic, you've got uh, multiple billions of dollars going to the institutions. You have debt first being deferred, which was unimagined by anyone from that deferment, which was landmark already, to a lot of forgiveness of debt for schools. And so we've just really been on a roll. And then there's the overall elevating of the brand. And I, I can't help but mention the fact that it coincides with Black Lives Matter, the unfortunate death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And, and really just stepping into a moment and making sure there are results for the people who deserve them the very most. So let, let's back up and let's just give my listeners the just a little lesson for those who do not know. What is the UNCF? And then we, we can explain that quickly. But then I, on the back end, you know, some people are going to ask the question, why is the UNCF necessary? So if you can answer those two for me. Great. So UNCF is... Um, the organization for private historically black colleges and universities really ends up representing almost all HBCUs, but it's, it's for private HBCUs. Uh, we represent them because we do things for them on Capitol Hill. We do other services for them. We actually give money to the schools. So like they don't pay to be members of UNCF. We give them money to help them uh, meet all of their obligations. And then we're this significant scholarship operator. We're mm -hmm. the second largest private provider of scholarships in the country, period, and we're the largest private provider of scholarships to minority individuals, um, which include African Americans, of course, but we award over $100 million a year to over 10,000 students at over 1,100 different colleges and universities. So our reach is to many, many first-generation college students and those that come from underserved um, economic backgrounds, period. Why are you necessary still? Oh, man, because there's still students that were just like me. You know, I, 
I, I think that this role has been so meaningful for me because I'm the type of student that I get to talk about all the time. I'm a first generation college grad, but I'm also a first generation high school grad. You and I were just talking about Laney and, and, and other high schools in Augusta. You know, I'm the first in my direct line to even graduate from high school. And that was in the year 2000. And I come from a low income background. I was a Pell Grant student. Um, I was so silly that when I was in school at Morehouse, I thought the Pell Grant was something meritorious. I thought I did something well. <laughs> I didn't realize I was poor. Um, but um, I'm that type of student. And, and because of UNCF, because I was a UNCF scholar at Morehouse, um, and the scholarship I had, as long as I kept my grades up, no one else in the class could get it. And because of that scholarship before age 30, I was debt free from college. So I have a lot of peers that are still talking about their student loans. But because of UNCF, I was without them and able to um, pursue a career that full circle brought me back to an organization that invested in me and, and allows me to have passion for it. And, and there's still a lot of students, you know, HBCU still have over 50% of our students are still first generation college students. So a lot of students are just like I was. And that's the reason why UNCF is still relevant. HBCUs are underinvested in, they need more money. We help provide that and we help students get to and through college. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So before we get to a political and policy analysis, particularly on many of the accomplishments that you have recently, let's go back a little bit. And what I want to do is, and before we get into the Biden administration, I think it's important that we set the record straight on what the Trump administration did and didn't do for our institutions. Can you give us the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Trump years when it came to support for HBCUs? So I'll give you the really good. The thing that President Trump did that no other president was doing before him is that he would talk about HBCUs any and everywhere. Before that, his 44 predecessors would only talk about those institutions in the month of February or that one week of the year, this HBCU week, or if they just happened to speak at that one HBCU a year where they were going to give a commencement address. That was it. Presidents did not talk about historically black colleges and universities. President Trump would talk about them in Detroit. He'd talk about them in New York. He would have them in his campaign ads. And so this was the first time that an American president is speaking so freely 
about historically black colleges and universities, that made an impact because it helped introduce them to audiences that did not know about them. What did he not do? He never really prioritized them in his big items. So a president every year has a budget that he carves out, and then he has all these policy initiatives. HBCUs were never central in the ideas that he proposed. Now, what did he do also? He would sign the bills that had HBCUs involved. And members of Congress from both parties will work really hard to get HBCUs, sometimes in the margins of bills, sometimes a little better than that, he would always sign the legislation. And so we had very strong funding, um, including the Future Act, which provides some funding in perpetuity for the colleges and universities. That was during his time frame. That's what he did and what he did not do. Um, but even though he signed the Future Act, he didn't propose it. He never made speeches in favor of it. But when it got to the desk, he signed it. Let's talk about this, something that we probably have to be a little bit more nuanced and critical of, uh, our good friend Barack Obama. Uh, it, it, he actually had a pretty rocky relationship at times with some of the HBCU presidents, not necessarily the UNCF, but some of the HBCU presidents and the CBC, particularly around his administration's position on things like parent plus loans. My, my father, mm -hmm. who was president of Voorhees, like, lost his shit over that because a lot of the students, uh, it, it was a retention tool. Um, parent plus loans. Same question as Trump. What were the good, bad, and ugly for the Obama years when it came to support for our HBCUs? So the defining moment, unfortunately, is the parent plus loan debacle uh, of the early 2010s. Uh, so let's, let's level set, Bakari. So Black families, I've read your book. I know you. I know your background. Black families have um, less household wealth. And because we have less household household wealth, um, we tend to need more help paying for college. That doesn't mean Black colleges cost more. Um, that just means Black people have less money, so we have to borrow more. And we'd have to borrow more no matter where we went to school, whether it was UGA or Morehouse. And students only have so much they can borrow, and so oftentimes we look for our parents to help. And that's the Parent PLUS loan. So one day, some smart people at the Department of Education with no consultation with anyone, no outside groups, they didn't talk to anyone. They changed the requirements for the Parent PLUS loan to say that if you had less than perfect credit, you could not get the Parent PLUS loan. Well, if Black people have less household wealth um, and then they have a harder time accessing capital, and when they access capital, it's at worse rates, we will oftentimes have less than perfect credit. And so all of a sudden, one day, you had students getting the Parent PLUS loan and they were enrolling in droves. And then the next day, you had a whole bunch of students that couldn't enroll. And each college and university kind of thought, maybe this is our problem. And then when they started talking to each other, like your dad talked to his other colleagues, they realized this was systematic and it was happening all across the system. And in a year's time, the whole HBCU community, um, our enrollment went down from 330,000 students to 290,000. Now, HBCUs are tuition driven. And so you take 40,000 students out of the equation, that's really hurting the bottom line of the institutions, which then um, you couple in the economic downfall of the 08 timeframe 
And, and you fast forward all the way back to early 2018, you have HBCUs now having a hard time paying loans to private entities and to the federal government. And that was kind of what you started to see when you saw institutions like Bennett College struggling um, with accreditation and other issues. It all had its genesis really in the 08 economic downturn, but yeah. then was exacerbated by the Parent PLUS loan debacle. So putting on your political hat for just a second, and most people don't know this, or they would not know this, but your political instincts are second to none. Uh, if you're the Biden administration, what lessons should they have learned from the Obama and Trump years when it comes to support for HBCUs? Well, I think that he learned a really big one, which is that the schools matter a lot. So it's not just those two, but I think you look at Doug Jones in Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, without HBCUs, there would be no Doug Jones. And that meant that there would be um, not the first Democratic senator in the Deep South in a very long time. Um, and so what they learned was putting uh, then Senator Harris on the ticket would energize a base of people and get them out. And they learned that well. Uh, in terms of policy and governing, um, they really learned a lot. You look at what President Biden put in his family's plan and in his jobs and infrastructure plan uh, for HBCUs and MSIs. Um, he proposed some $95 billion. So for the first time, you find almost in history a president making these institutions central to his large scale must has planned. Now that Congress hear all of that is another question, but this is the first time in almost history that you find the president making the institution central, which really spoke to the value of not only the schools, but us as people. Like for the first time, this is the executive of the United States, not talking to us like we mattered, but wanting to invest federal money in us, not some nickels and dimes, but billions on top of billions, because in his eyes, in their eyes, the president, the vice president's eyes, we matter a lot to the economy, to the nation, to the future. And I think that was really earth shattering for the president. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 
7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth, plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So there was a lot of misinformation at, at a period of time about what spending was promised as a part of the Biden campaign for HBCUs and what spending Congress actually authorized through the version of Build Back Better that eventually passed the House. But can you just explain the difference, when it, particularly when it comes to this funding, from um, campaign promises to authorized funding and appropriated funding for our listeners? That's hard, but I'll try. So <laughs> the president the president promised to invest over $70 billion in HBCUs and MSIs during this time frame. Then he actually overproduced on his promise because in his original plans for Build Back Better um, and infrastructure, he wanted to have $95 billion invested. Um, then Congress kind of got a little confused. Um, I don't no. know. I don't know if they didn't think that the schools were organized. I don't know if they didn't think the schools were worth the investment. I don't know if they didn't think we were going to read the bill. Um, but they put a lot less money in the bill. And so we spoke out against it. You know, we do all the things that an organization is supposed to do. You put out statements, you do interviews. The Washington Post was all over it. Everybody was talking about it. But then the internet did what the internet does, which is oversimplify something Correct. to the point where everybody can get it and say that the president promised something and it's way less in the bill. Well, it wasn't the president's fault because he did promise and he put it in his proposal, but then Congress wasn't following through on it. And it was so simple, it was unfair to the president because they were making it look like he was cutting Correct. HBCUs. That was unfair to him, but somebody was. And it kind of moved some folks into action and the bill became a lot better. And really everything that we wanted to see get put back in the bill, more money, um, some issues around making sure HBCUs don't have to compete with these more resource institutions unfairly. Um, they were all resolved in the bill that the House did pass and that we're looking forward over in the Senate. So what does that $10 made billion, those what that $10 billion, what does that $10 billion do? Because it's $10 billion, just, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the Build Back Better that the House passed. What does that do for your institutions? It, it starts with $10 billion. First, I want to say whoever made that mean, thank you. I don't know who you are, but thank you. Um, but what it will do is um, there will be significant multi-billions of dollars for building on um, HBCU campuses, biomedical buildings. So um, helping to strengthen the STEM programs. Um, it would be more investments in non-biomedical building, but then a lot of investments in the student services on the campuses. So you're building up both the buildings and we have a lot of deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance. You're, bu <laughs> yeah. you're building up the buildings and then you're building up and investing in the people that go in the buildings because you have to strengthen them 
because it's not just the deferred maintenance, it's deferred investment in Black people overall. And those that show the aptitude for college should get more funding than they already get. And the Pell Grant. And a major piece of legislation that we should see pass early next year is the United States Innovation and Competition Act. The Senate passed version included $750 million for HBCUs and MSI, specifically for building out their research, uh, and another $100 million for uh, to get black and brown folks through HBCUs and tribal colleges uh, in the broadband and, t- and telecommunications industry. That's $850 million on top of the $10 billion. Do people realize how much money we're actually talking about here? And can you talk a little bit about the Competition Act and what it could mean for your schools if it passes next year? Well, we still want to see some improvements to the Competition Act. And one thing that we can talk about is in these processes, Um, You have to make sure that you bring in groups that really know the stakeholders well from the beginning and not on the back end. That was a problem with the Competition Act. So we're still working hard on getting that up. I don't think people really understand the amount of money we're talking about, Bakari. Um, (laughs) When I came to this job, HBCUs and the word billion were never in the same sentence ever, Um, especially not in any legislation. And, And you look at what, you know, you got over a billion dollars. Uh, for HBCUs and the CARES Act. Then you more than double that in the December 2020 stimulus. Then you improve upon that to around $3 billion in the American Rescue Plan. And you're talking about a lot of real money. And then, you know, the bills that you're mentioning that aren't finished yet. um, You know, I think we have a lot more work to do to make sure that people understand what's coming down the pike and that we need to be ready to invest it and make good on it. Because after the money comes in, people are going to want to know that you spend it well, and you have to have a good, strong story about it, or there won't be more money. You've been doing yeoman's work over there at the UNCF. How can people support the UNCF and the work that you all are doing? They can go to uncf.org and donate. And that's how that's how I'm funded. That's how my whole department is funded. And that's how we do the work that changes students' lives every day. I I don't get a chance to see the students really that are affected by this work, but I know they exist because I know who I was and who I am. And, and, you know, I still really deeply believe in our slogan and in our mission that a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I'm just so glad that there were resources because of donations that allow me Uh, not to fall in that category. And I'm glad that I'm still here today. And so is an organization that was willing to invest in me. I love you, brother. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. You're doing great work at the UNCF. Shout out to Michael Lomax, who's been running that organization seamlessly and efficiently for so many years. But a lot of the real work on the ground is being done by my brother, Ladrigas Murray. And I cannot, cannot overlook that fact. Thank you, my brother. Have a blessed day. Thanks. The only thing I wish I did is ask you what the dress code was for the day. Oh, you look way better than me, but I had to represent South Carolina State because Saturday yes, sir. is going down in Atlanta. I'll be there at the Celebration Bowl so we can whip up on Jackson State. That's what it is. I'll be in town, too. Let's get up. We'll definitely link. Thanks, man. <laughs>